0: All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, it is Monday, therefore it is time to stand in the confessional corner. And this week we have a treat for you. We've spent months in articles. We've spent the last couple of weeks in an article. Today we're covering three articles because they're all real short. Because these are all things that the Lutheran reformers and the Roman theologians have in common. It's the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and confession absolution. Now again, we'll come back around to confession absolution again later on in the Apology, but here we have simply the basics of them. So we're going to cover Articles 9, 10, and 11 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. So we'll start with Article 9. Article 9 has been approved, in which we confess that baptism is necessary for salvation, that children are to be baptized, and that the baptism of children is not in vain, but is necessary and effective for salvation. Since the gospel is taught among us purely and diligently, by God's favor we receive also this fruit from it. In our churches, no Anabaptists have arisen. This is because the people have been strengthened by God's word against the wicked and rebellious faction of these robbers. This is also among the distinct errors of the Anabaptists we condemn. They argue that the baptism of little children is useless, for it is very certain that the promise of salvation also applies to little children. It does not, however, apply to those who are outside of Christ's church, where there is neither word nor sacraments. Christ's kingdom exists only with the word and sacraments. Therefore, it is necessary to baptize little children that the promise of salvation may be applied to them according to Christ's command to baptize all nations, Matthew 28:19). Just as in this passage passage salvation is offered to all so baptism is offered to all to men, women, children, infants it clearly follows therefore that infants are to be baptized because salvation is offered with baptism second it is clear that God approves of the baptism of little children therefore the Anabaptists who condemned the baptism of little children believe wickedly God's approval of the baptism of little children is shown by this he gives the Holy Spirit to those baptized Acts 2 verses 38 and 39 for if this baptism would be empty, the Holy Spirit would be given to no one, no one would be saved, and finally there would be no church. This reason, even by itself, can well enough establish good and godly minds against the godless and fanatical opinions of the Anabaptist. So far, Article 9. The Anabaptist, what we would now consider the Amish and the Mennonite, and even a lot of the flavors of Baptist and some of the Reformed tendencies have this, that condemn infant baptism, condemn baptism before the age of accountability or the age of reason depending on their terminology. But if infant baptism was not valid, the Reformers say, and the adversaries would say as well, then there would be no church on earth Because you had centuries between the time that the Edict of Milan made Christianity a legal religion and then eventually the religion of the Roman Empire to the time of the Reformation where almost everybody was baptized as an infant. You did not have adult baptisms very often. You did not have even older children coming and being baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in their baptism. And that is seen by all of those church fathers that we look to and admire who were baptized as infants, who we see as being inspired to write, not on the level of the Scriptures, but being gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to write the things that they write. But none of this would exist if infant baptism was not effective. So therefore our common enemy in this battle over baptism are those who are the Anabaptists. And another word about Anabaptist real quick. The root there, the literal meaning of that is the rebaptizers. Those who demanded that people who joined their church be baptized again if they were baptized in another church especially as infants. Sometimes the Anabaptists continue to go on even if you are baptized in a different church fellowship than they are. If you come from even an adult baptism as a Lutheran going into a Baptist church, many of them will require that person to be rebaptized as a Baptist. Like the Baptist baptism is more valid than the Lutheran baptism. But again, They want to make sure that you are baptized into the right faith. Which, again, if we have the problems with the differences of faith being that drastic, we definitely need to get back to understanding what the Bible actually says. And not what we want it to say, what we think it ought to say. But getting back to the Bible. All right, enough of my rant on the Anabaptists. We move on into Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. Again, Article 10 has been approved, in which we confess the following. We believe that in the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood are truly and substantially present and are truly administered with those things that are seen, bread and wine, to those who receive the sacrament. We constantly defend this belief as the subject has been clearly examined and considered. Since Paul says the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.16 It would follow that if the Lord's body were not truly present, the bread is not a communion of the body, but only of Christ's spirit. We have determined that not only the Roman church affirms Christ's bodily presence, the Greek church now also believes, and formerly believed the same. Their canon of the Mass testifies to this. In the canon, the priest clearly prays that the bread may be changed and become Christ's very body. Vulgarius, who does not seem to be an unimportant writer to us, says clearly that bread is not a mere figure, but is truly changed into flesh. There is a long commentary by Cyril on John 15, in which he teaches that Christ is bodily offered to us in the supper. For he says, "...nevertheless, we do not deny that we are joined spiritually to Christ by true faith and sincere love, but that we have no way of connection with Him according to the flesh. This, indeed, we entirely deny." We say this idea is completely foreign to the divine scriptures. For who has doubted that Christ is in this manner of vine, and we the branches, deriving life for ourselves from this? Here Paul saying, For you are all one in Christ Jesus, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, for we all partake of the one bread. Galatians 3.28, Romans 12.5, 1 Corinthians 10.17. Does he not perhaps think that the virtue of the mystical benediction is unknown to us? Since this is in us, does it not also, by the communication of Christ's flesh, cause Christ to dwell in us bodily? And a little after, therefore we must consider that Christ is in us not only according to the habit, which we call love, but also by natural participation. We have cited these testimonies not to undertake a discussion here about this subject, for His Imperial Majesty does not disapprove of this article, but we cite them so that all who read them may more clearly discern that we defend the doctrine received in the entire church in the Lord's Supper. Christ's body and blood are truly and actually present. they are truly administered with those things that are seen, bread and wine, and we see we, and we speak of the presence of the living Christ, for we know that death no longer has dominion over him Romans six nine Rome accepts Lutheran communion just as they accept the Greek Orthodox communion, because we firmly believe that Christ's body and blood are truly and really present in the bread and wine. The only question we have, which comes up in Article 24 again, is how does it happen? How does the body and blood get in with and under the bread and wine? And we will talk more about that ad nauseum, I will warn you ahead of time, when we get to Article 24, when we talk about the disruptions of the Mass. But for now, we just leave it as we have, according to the Roman Church, a valid communion. And we, again, once they start giving both kinds, which they have, and many places do offer both the bread and the wine to the communicants in the Catholic Church. Many may not take it, but it is offered that we also agree that they have a valid communion. But again, that comes up again in later articles. All right, now we move into Article 11. Confession. Again, Article 11, confession is approved, but they add a correction in reference to confession. They say that the regulation called omnius utrisque be observed and annual confession be made. They also say that although all sins cannot be named, they should be recalled with diligence. Those that can be recalled should be specified. We will speak at greater length about this entire article after a while, when we will explain our entire opinion about repentance. It is well known that we have made clear and praised the benefit of absolution and the power of the keys. Many troubled consciences have derived comfort from our teaching. They have been comforted after they heard that it is God's command. Note rather the very voice of the gospel that we should believe the absolution and regard it as certain that the forgiveness of sins is freely granted to us for Christ's sake. We should believe that through this faith we are truly reconciled to God. This belief has encouraged many godly minds and in the beginning brought Luther the highest praise from all good people. This belief shows consciences sure and firm comfort. Previously, the entire power of absolution had been kept under wraps by teaching about works. For the learned persons and monks taught nothing about faith and free forgiveness. So we have in this first paragraph the notion that, yes, we accept that you guys have confession, but we want to make sure you follow this papal bull that says that confession must be made at least once a year. Otherwise, the person was not allowed to receive communion. This holds still true today in the Catholic Church, is that, yes, you must go to confession at least once a year. And the priest marks it down as to when you've been, so that he knows that if it has been 367 days, Oh, we will give you a leap year here. If it's been 367 days since your last confession and you show up for the Mass, you are not allowed to get communion. Let me face palm here for a second. That is taking the gifts of the gospel and throwing them into the law. That is taking the idea that, yes, we are commanded to confess our sins but again that same one understands the or that same papal bull says that you must name every sin and he says we'll talk about that when we get to repentance which is article 12 next week and further on down through many of the other abuses of the articles but he says if you look at our writings if you look at what we actually teach about confession and absolution, you see that it is the most comforting voice of the gospel. And many people have been given comfort in knowing that, yes, their sins are forgiven. Not because they have done so many Hail Marys or so many Our Fathers or have done this or that pilgrimage or good work or whatever, but because the pastor can say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is what brings the gospel to people. That is what brings a troubled conscience peace. All right, we move on into paragraphs 60 to 62, which are still numbered back from Article 7 as they just simply bring that through as these articles just attach on to what is the church. Because what does the church do? It administers the sacraments. It preaches the gospel. So we continue on. Concerning the time, certainly most people in our churches frequently use the sacraments, absolution and the Lord's Supper, during the year. Those who teach about the worth and fruit of the sacraments speak in a way that invites the people to use the sacraments frequently. There are many writings by our theologians about this subject that the adversaries, if they are good men, will undoubtedly approve and praise. Excommunication is also pronounced against the openly wicked and the haters of the sacraments. These things are done both according to the gospel and according to the old canons. A fixed time for confession is not prescribed because all are not ready in the same way at the same time. Yes, if all were to come at the same time, they could not be heard and instructed in order. The old canons of fathers do not point a fixed time. The canon speaks only in this way: If any enter the church and be found never to commune, let them be taught that if they do not commune, they come to repentance. If they come, if they commune, if they wish to be regarded as Christians, let them not be thrown out. If they fail to do so, let them be excommunicated. Christ or Paul says that those who eat unworthily eat judgment to themselves. First Corinthians eleven twenty nine. So the pastors do not force those who are not qualified to use the sacraments. The sacraments, especially absolution and the Lord's Supper, those that are repeated over and over again, provide the fruit that encourages and invites and promotes the more frequent use thereof. This is what we sometimes lose sight of in 21st century Christianity, is that especially we get to a point where it's like, okay, I've had communion. I'm good for forever if I want it to be. Like, we have control over how long communion lasts, which is a different question altogether. But the point is, those people come to despise the very things that are supposed to bring them the great comfort of the gospel. And that is where excommunication comes in. It is not... A wonderful process to go through it is not fun to tell somebody no you are no longer able to receive the Lord's Supper in this place because nowadays we think it's our right because it should be just like we get the right to vote and to bear arms and to do certain things depending on our ages that it is our right to do that. that the same thing should happen in the church But the church operates through the gospel, but also in good order. Having to make sure that the gospel is not trampled on. Because that is what the Reformation was all about in the first place. Is making sure the gospel was no longer trampled on. And that is what we seek to do, especially when we come to confession. Is that you can't say, okay, we're going to have confession on May 15th. And everybody comes in. Because... Not everybody's ready to make confession on May 15th. They may not be ready till May 16th. They may not be ready till November 15th. They may not be ready till the following April. No, we don't put a specific time where we demand, nor do we actually demand that people come to confession. But we have it at the beginning of the divine service. We can argue over that a different time as to whether the goodness or badness of it, but also still have private confession absolution, which is what the article is primarily talking about. That, yes, we do offer times, especially during Advent and Lent, as we prepare for Christmas and Easter, for people to come and to make use of it. We don't force anybody. We simply say it is available if you want it. And I encourage you to take advantage of it. All right, let's finish off this article here, what we have in this edition as paragraphs 63 to 67. Concerning the enumeration of sins in confession, people are taught in such a way as not to trap their consciences. It is helpful to familiarize inexperienced people to name some things in order that they may be more readily taught. We are now discussing what is necessary according to divine law. Therefore, the adversary should not quote for us the regulation omnis utricisque, which we already know. But they should show from the divine law that naming, complete naming of sins is necessary for obtaining their forgiveness. The entire church throughout all Europe knows that sort of snares this point of the regulation has cast upon consciences by commanding that all sins be confessed. The matter was only made worse by the summist, who collected the circumstances of the sins and added their own ideas. What mazes there were! How great a torture for the best minds! The immoral and ungodly were in no way moved by these instruments of terror. Afterward, what tragedies did the questions about one's own priests stir up among the pastors and brethren, who then were by no means brethren when they were warring over jurisdiction of confessions? We believe that according to divine law, a complete listing of sins is not necessary. This is also pleasing to Panoramatus and very many other learned legal scholars. Nor do we want to burden the consciences of our people by the regulation. We judge it to be like any other human tradition. They are not acts of worship necessary for justification. The regulation commands that we do something impossible, that we should confess all sins. However, it is clear that most sins we neither remember nor understand, according to Psalm 19.12, Who can discern his errors? If the pastors are good men, they will know to what extent they should examine inexperienced persons. But we do not sanction the torture of the summist. It would have been more tolerable if they had added one word about faith which comforts and encourages consciences. About this faith which obtains the forgiveness of sins, there is not a syllable in so great a mass of regulations, commentaries, summaries, or books of confession. Christ is nowhere read there. Only the list of sins are read. The greater part is occupied with sins against human traditions. This is most useless. This doctrine has forced many to despair. Godly minds were not able to find rest because they believed that by divine law, listing was necessary. Yet they experienced that it was impossible. Other faults of no less importance cling to the doctrine of the adversaries about repentance, which we will now recount. All right, it's great and wonderful that he jumps into, yeah, you know, we're gonna summarize this, and then, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to talk about repentance now in article twelve, but we'll keep in confession and article eleven for this week, and the main things. no, you do not have to list every sin you have done since the last time you went to confession because you can't do it. This is why we have in the confession that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed by things that we have done and things that we have left undone. There are things that we know that we have sinned. There are times where we have not done things or done things that we didn't know we were sinning. And we didn't know the complete ramifications of our actions. And yes, we confess those sins too. Not through the listing in private confession absolution, but by the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses. It doesn't say, forgive us our trespasses that we remember or that we have listed, but it has all of them there. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it's just wonderful how he summarizes this. If the pastors are good men, they will know to what extent they should examine inexperienced persons. Yes, When you go to confession and you're not really sure what to confess, yes, the pastor can ask questions. The pastor can see, okay, have you had an issue with anger? Have you had an issue with lust? Have you had an issue with coveting? But it is not to go through and detail all that out. And that is what the problem was with all the stuff on confession in the medieval church. I mean, listen to it again. About this faith which obtains the forgiveness of sins, there is not a syllable in so great a mass of regulations, commentaries, summaries, or books of confession. Christ is nowhere read there. Only the list of sins are read. When the the Roman theologians and the summists and the scholastics come up with all of their things on books of confession, what do they talk about? They talk about the sins. They don't talk about forgiveness. They don't talk about faith and mercy and grace. They talk about what you have done and what you have not done. They talk about you, 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 pointing the finger like the law always does, accusing you of not being good enough for God. And you have to say, yeah, I'm not good enough for God. I will never be good enough for God except by his grace when I receive his forgiveness whether in the words of absolution or in the body and blood of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. Then I can say, yes, I am good enough for God. And then, yes, we take pride in that and then we just completely botch it all over again. Which is why we use these frequently so that we may continually be given that opportunity for God to forgive us, for us to accept that forgiveness. All right, that's it for this week. We have covered baptism, the Lord's Supper, and confession absolution this week. All right, next week we get to start trudging through repentance, which is the second longest article in the Apology. So we'll be there for a few weeks as well. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.